welcome to the show. This is Alex Cummings, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University here in beautiful downtown Atlanta. Um, I'm joined today by a guest host, Will Greer, who uh, is the Digital Media Coordinator for Tropics of Meta, um, a PhD student here in the Department of History, and a, a friend of the show. How's it going, Will? It's going well. How are you? Not too bad. Excellent. We're going to talk about something a little bit different this time. Um, we've done lots of episodes in the past about um, subjects such as the history of America's relationship with Russia, the anti-vaccination movement, where we talk to scholars, journalists, other experts about their area of expertise. Um, this is a little bit different because we're going to be using a lot of oral history interviews, and we're talking about um, a recent part of history, the huge Women's March of 2017, and the history that's being documented of this massive event. Um, of course, this uh, march happened at a time when I think a lot of uh, people were still in a bit of a state of shock about um, the political turn of events. Um, I know I, for one, was still in a daze at the time. Um, and it represented not just a groundswell of activism and um, and a reaction to the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Uh, it also seemed to be the beginning of a bigger cultural and political moment that is really still unfolding. Uh, you see so many women who have been galvanized into activism, into running for office across the country, uh, one of whom, including our very own Carolyn Bordeaux here at Georgia State, who's um, running for Congress. So go, Carolyn. Go, Carolyn. Absolutely. Um, and just the whole cultural zeitgeist um, that sort of seems to flow out of this. I feel like even the Me Too movement is somehow um, connected to our collective grappling with issues of gender, sexism, and politics, and power. Um, so that's a big story, and we don't know how that story ends yet. Um, I, I went to the march here in Atlanta. Um, what was your impression of it at the time, Will? At the time, um, my impression of it was uh, it was it was rainy. It was kind of a it was kind of a glum day. <laughs> yeah. But the march itself was really impressive, and um, I just remember gathering um, by the Civil Rights Museum and. Even though I couldn't hear any of the speakers, there was just this great energy in the crowd. And then, amazingly enough, John Lewis walked very near <laughs> by me, and I managed to snap a picture of him. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most of us have been to some political rallies or demonstrations over the years about wars and politics and elections and things like that. Um, I felt so cynical at the time when this was happening because I felt like a bunch of people rallying for a day is not going to change anything. I, I've always thought of that, that outcast lyric, the great lyric where um, I don't know, Big Boy, I think, says uh, speeches only reaches those who already know about it, so this is how we go about it. Obsolete are the... Uh, streets and marches, something like that. Basically saying, you know, rallies, speeches, demonstrations don't really accomplish much. Um, I think that I was proven quite wrong <laughs> in, in this case in particular. Um, so, you know, this is a, we usually try to keep things a little light, light and, and free on this show, uh, even when we're talking about serious subjects. Um, this is a unique case because it is, um, it is, it is a story that comes out of a great deal of, of anger, um, fear, I would say, trauma, the way so many of us were afraid after November 2016. Um, yeah. But it's also a story of a great deal of hope and power and um, the joy of resistance, the joy of being with other people who um, share your, your values and care about social justice and equity. Well, well, yeah, I mean, what I'll say is that I think that by themselves, uh, demonstrations and, and protests are, they're sort of 
one tool in a, in a broader box of tools. They operate, they, they, they function in a much broader context. And so you can isolate demonstrations and say, oh, well, they don't do anything. But at the same time, if you look at it in a bigger context, what they do is they generate momentum, they generate energy, they generate awareness. And I think, you know, and they galvanize people into action. I know that um, I did a study of uh, seven people who attended the Women's March, and um, most of them were galvanized into some sort of political action afterwards, be it uh, attending another rally, calling their congressman, or just simply paying more attention to what's going on. And so it's, you know, it's a consciousness-developing event, I think. Yes, that old uh, wonderful phrase from the 70s, consciousness-raising, right. um, certainly raised a lot of consciousnesses. Um, and my own innate uh, sort of inveterate fatalism notwithstanding, um, this was not a one-off event. It was not just symbolic politics. Um, it seems to be part of a greater um, sort of groundswell of activism and engagement that um, is sustained and it's taking the form of um, people running for office, it's taking the form I would say of the, um, you know, the March for Our Lives and the fight for a sensible gun policy, um, young people, old people, <laughs> everybody in between. Um, so this is part of a bigger constellation of forces and we really want to um, sort of discuss how people experienced it, how it was organized. Um, and, and record that history. We're quite fortunate that um, a great deal of oral history has already been recorded. Um, we're going to talk to Morna Gerard, who is the librarian for the Women and Gender Collections and our special collections here at Georgia State. Uh, Morna's done some incredible work with uh, the help of a lot of other people, too, um, to document stories of people who uh, were involved in organizing um, the march. I and was one of those people, actually. I <coughs> conducted it in a total of nine interviews for the project. Anybody who's done interviews before knows that nine interviews is no joke. Um, it's, it takes a lot of time and work, and I, 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 I'm not sure, but I feel like Morna said there's about 100 of them at this point. Yeah. So it's an incredible resource um, for posterity, and we're really excited about it. Um, we sat down to talk to Morna about her work, um, and we're also going to hear from some of the voices of people who uh, were part of the march and part of the organizing and who put together this extraordinary event and experienced it firsthand. So we're going to talk to Morna. All right. Hi there. I am Morna Gerard. I'm the archivist for Women's Gender and Sexuality uh, Collections here at Georgia State Special Collections. Awesome. I'm very happy to talk to you. <laughs> and we're very happy to uh, see your smiling face and uh, uh, flinty determination. <laughs> <That's> um, <it. laughs> um, so um, I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your own background, how you came to this work. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. I um, studied history at Edinburgh University in Scotland and uh, was always very interested in women's history. Um, and when my, my final year was almost up at Edinburgh, I got my master's there, um, a call went out to um, anybody who wanted to apply for a teaching position, a teaching assistantship position um, at Western Washington University, where the, the person who won the assistantship would, would study archives and records management. So I won that uh, many years ago, went out to Bellingham, Washington, and um, studied um, archives and fell in love with it. I went back to Edinburgh and um, stayed there for four or five years, worked at the National Archives of Scotland, uh, which was really a beautiful and wonderful experience. And then um, my husband, who was not my husband at the time, asked me to marry him, and I came over to the United States we got married and we found our way up to Atlanta and finally into, uh, I was working with the women's collections at Georgia State University, which is like the perfect job for me. Then over time, that collection grew substantially enough to expand to include the LGBTQ communities as well. So it became women and gender collections. And as of this year, because that part of the collection has grown so much, 
we've separated them off and we have women's and gender and sexuality collections now and I'm in charge of both and I'm very happy to be there. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the right match of the person and position. Um, and that's always nice when that happens. I love coming to, date, to work every single day. Not many people can say that. Um, yeah, it's a really wonderful uh, resource here uh, for especially our students. Um, you know, we have the Southern Labor History Archive here, the women's collection, which is incredibly robust. Um, a lot of really interesting um, archival materials, and we have undergraduate students who come in here, history majors, who can just dig in and open the box or the folder and, you know, are so excited about, you know, looking at documentary evidence for the first time, which is, you know, always fun to watch, right? Yes, and, uh, and we actually, we, we like to teach a lot with um, special collections, uh, not just history students, but also English um, students. We've been doing a lot, a lot of teaching with English freshmen, um, using archives to teach archival literacy, critical thinking, all of these things. Um, I, we have some particularly difficult collections, um, <laughs> challenging, you know, um, there's a lot of solid rhetoric in them, so they're great for teaching. Oh, right. Um, you know, they're, they, we can have very um, robust conversations about what we're, we're seeing, but they're also good for teaching students to examine complicated and challenging subjects um, from an objective, uh, like less biased perspective. So, you know, looking at, you know, how somebody writes something, who they're writing it for, why are they writing it, who's their audience, what's, what's their intent, all of these things, taking a step back from the, the passionate, um, sort of angry discussions that you would have around certain su su subject matter and looking at things from a, um, a, a, an academic, sort of research-based, um, impartial perspective. And a humanistic perspective, right? Yeah. Which is what we're ho yeah. hoping to instill yes. when we teach history. <laughs> um, and c coming to that uh, humanism, I guess we should talk about the Women's March. Um, I, I think this is a, a really fantastic subject, and um, you guys have, we're going to talk about, you guys have conducted a massive uh, number of interviews um, that record this history. Um, but I should say, you know, um, speaking to the kind of context that um, we mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, um, this march happened, um, you know, while many Americans were still uh, pretty phased by um, the outcome of the 2016 election. I personally, frankly, admit that when I heard that it was going to happen, I felt very despondent. I thought, you know, marching around with signs and stuff, nobody cares about rallies, demonstrations, except the people who are in them. Uh, we have basically the tanks rolling into Prague. <laughs> you know, uh, we're, you know, this isn't going to do anything. I still went to the march here in Atlanta, but I, I just felt like, what is this going to accomplish? That's my totally frank um, confession about that. However, um, it turned out that it was I think the biggest mass mobilization in American history. Um, it seems to have had a far greater impact than I anticipated in my, you know, traumatized and despondent state. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, if we can talk about that. Like, how does something so big get organized by so many strangers so fast? Well, I think part the first of all, I want to come back to you, sure. your your sort of thought that. Um, get, getting together doesn't really accomplish an awful lot and I think that that's a really common perspective but I want to tell you a very short story if you don't mind about a, a tiny tiny protest I went to uh, some years ago um, I used to volunteer for uh, near all pro-choice Georgia and I got a phone call um, from their, their organizers saying this woman locally was denied plan B from her pharmacist and um, she was not potentially pregnant she was just planning to put it in her, her medicine cabinet so that she could be prepared and we need to protest there's going to be a camera down at the capitol at lunchtime and she knew that i i worked close to the capitol so i put on my i took off my um georgia state persona and put on my <laughs> activist persona and i went down to the capitol and there were probably no more than seven of us and it was a cold day and we had our own little flappy signs because it was windy and the signs were flapping in the wind and we were a pretty pathetic little bunch. 
but there was we had a podium with a microphone and we had a camera and they reported us at the Capitol that night on TV and the next day the pharmacy changed their policy so turning up actually really matters I really really believe that um, not every time but it, it's like you, you you can get your point across and you can you can you can be powerful um, one person at a time right so that's where that's right. where I, and I, bec I think because I had that experience when when I heard there was going to be a march I was like I am all in <laughs> I'm you know I'm going to DC it's going to be um, the, the most you know I, I, I hope it's going to be a great experience I think there'll be quite a lot of people there I, I will say as as the planning was taking place and we you know we heard all sorts of um, feedback about the lack of sort of inclusion and, and diversity and all of that I was like oh can't, can we not just do something right we need to do this one right this is this is the most important time to do it right and I think at the at the end of the day they got there um, and I know in Atlanta um, it, it just because uh, we've interviewed um, one of the, the organizers who was at the Atlanta March and she's I mean it really was just luck that these people found one another and worked really really well with one another and I think were um, honest enough within themselves about what needed to be done around inclusion and, and I think the Atlanta March did a phenomenal job of organizing and dealing with the, the issues that could have been major hurdles um, around getting people to buy into it. Sure. Yeah, and I do want to come back to that discussion sort of of the strengths and maybe what might be shortcomings mm -hmm. uh, of the action, but um, anybody who's planned something as small as a high school reunion or an academic conference knows that it is extremely difficult to coordinate people and resources and this was so big yes and you you're also coordinating it um, the day after inauguration and in January so there's weather issues um, in fact talk about weather issues the morning of the march in Atlanta there was a tornado warning you all probably didn't know that but Lynn Olivieri, who was the logistics person for the Atlanta March, she was on the phone to the police trying to plan where they were going to get thousands and thousands of people into a safe place while it was pouring rain. So it's, it's you know these things that are that, that have to happen. You're um, getting permission to march, uh, planning mm -hmm. your route, um, getting portaloos everywhere, getting security lined up. All these there's so many different pieces that have to come together that I think as a marcher you're completely unaware of. You're there because it feels good to you, for you to be there. You feel like you're righteous and you're changing the world. And I, you know, I, I really strongly believe it's the people who are organizing these things that are like really far too much unsung uh, right. heroines and heroes that are really making this stuff happen. Um, and it takes, it's their lives. The, for the, the the weeks that lead up to one of these actions, it's it's absolutely it takes over their lives. Right. Um, so I I mean I mean I only organize events here <laughs> in special collections, and I know how much how much work that that takes. But I think finding the right the right group of people who have um, skills and strengths in particular areas, I think, is really really essential. Yeah. What were um, what were some of the challenges in in making it all happen? You know, even getting people to the the people I've talked to doing interviews. Um, I've obviously I've talked to one of the mar the organizers for the the organiz organizers for the Atlanta March. I've talked to bus captains for the the folks who went up to DC. And even just getting that organized was a challenge. Some of the buses broke down. Um, one of the buses that left from Decatur, there was a small fire on it. On just, it was a brand new bus. The, the, the electrics weren't great, so they had a little fire. Um, there's other buses where the, the toilets didn't work. Um, so it's a long trip with no, no toilet facilities. Um, just figuring out where everyone's going to meet 
getting them there, herding them there, getting them on buses, making when when you get off at a stop, everyone has to get off at the stop, get them all back. I mean, it is a massive um, undertaking, and and the bus captains who I've talked to. I don't think they could really relax and enjoy the march the same way that the rest of the world did because they felt responsible for people. Um, and I think it was it was pretty exhausting for them. I take my hat off to them um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it was because everything happened so quickly and because we've never really done this before um, to this extent. There, it was a, it was really challenging for those who were taking leads. I know quite a number of years ago there was another a big women's march around um, reproductive rights, and there was a whole kerfuffle about buses getting up to DC. So it's it's this is like a common, right. a, it's like you you have to get the people from one place to another, and people were coming from everywhere uh, into into DC. Yeah. Yeah, I I I, under, I organized a bus tour uh, once that I think seemed like it took about nine months to plan <laughs> just for a five-hour bus yeah. tour. So this is uh, on a whole different scale. Um, and to do it so quickly, really, right. from the time of, and it was quite quickly after you know, the, the election, you, you know, that if you think it's just weeks that they had to plan this, where normally you'd be planning a lot further out, right. they, they, they did a tremendous job. What, did, what, what, what were some of the issues around diversity and inclusion that were part of this conversation? I think a lot of um, um, black women especially felt excluded, as they've often felt excluded. Um, women's movements in the past have been generally white middle class movements. Um, and historically it's because white middle class women had the time um, to, to, to sort of take these things on. Black women were still trying to struggle to help black people generally um, find find their way, and so um, it's always been a challenge to to make um, the action inclusive, um, and I think we struggled with that. And I and, and I know some people did not march because of that. Um, there's there's also like trans women did not necessarily feel um, welcome. Um, you know, it, it, because it was called a women's, women's March, I love that in, in Atlanta they called it um, the March for Social, Social Justice and Women, mm -hmm. which I think was a really important sort of statement, that, that this was very inclusive. Um, and I, 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 you know, I think it, it would have been better if the, the Women's March was kind of, kind of, named more appropriately. Kind of like the 1963 March on Washington being called the March for Jobs and Freedom, yeah. where nobody it, it, remembers the, yeah. the jobs part. Yes, um, and, and, and actually I, I will say, you know, being at the march, there weren't just women there, there were a lot, of, everyone was, was represented. I saw like everything, so um, including many, many, many black women. And I, we did interview some black women who talked about, um, you know, why this, you know, the one in particular, um, Amanda Hollowell, who's from Savannah, was asked to organize um, a rally in Savannah, and, and her original sort of like response was like, well, this doesn't represent me. What, you know, what, what, this just, this, why, why should I do this for, you know, it's not, I have a completely different experience from, from what you all have. Whatever you have, I have much worse. And eventually she came round, and she's glad that she came round. But I also had um, um, Anne-Marie Anne Titchler. She's an African-American woman who organized a bus to go up to, um, to DC. And she had um, kind of a different approach. She was like, you know, I know all of this stuff was going on. I heard all of that going on. But I just decided everyone had their own reasons for going, and I was going to go for my reason. And everyone's reasons were valid. And um, you know, and even she's like um, a black woman from one area doesn't understand what like um, an Iranian woman from another area, or you know, someone from a different culture from another. We don't we don't know what each other's life experiences are, so we shouldn't be sort of like 
let's just look at within ourselves and why do I want to march for myself? And that was kind of her, her approach and she was very glad that she did it too. On, on balance, you would feel like the organizers of these demonstrations did a relatively good I, job? I think once, on once, the, once the issue was addressed, I think that they did right. as, as good a job as they could within the time that they had to do it. Right, and like you said, this has been a perennial sort of um, discussion within the women's movement and... Um, within movements generally. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, but it, it definitely, we document second wave feminism here too, and it was absolutely, it's, it's second wave feminism is so middle class white. It really is. Um, and I think things are definitely changing, um, but it's people who have the resources no, there's a lot of women who couldn't take time off to go to a march, um, yeah. let alone, not, not just in Atlanta, let alone like the, the resources to go up to D.C. to pay for a, a bus seat or a plane ticket or a hotel or just you know anything. Um, and we, you know, we have to think about that. Um, so I felt like I was marching for a lot of these women as well. Well, I, hopefully you're marching for each other, yeah. um, right? Um, and you've been documenting these experiences um, on a pretty uh, epic scale here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you um, came to be involved in documenting um, the march? Yeah, um, well, you know, as, as you know, we've, we've had a um, women's collection here, and we've had a women's collection since 1995. So I was always going to document the march um, because it was such a significant moment in women's history. Um, and so, you know, I, I talked to my supervisor and, and her supervisor and, and everything was, was like, yes, of course, we're going to do this. And then um, a few weeks before the, um, the march took place, the Society of American Archivists um, women's archivist section uh, put out a call for archivists from all over the country to collect materials around um, the marches to do oral histories and to, to take photographs, go out to the marches, do all of that, bring it back and try and make sure that one repository in every state at least is, is um, collecting this stuff and maintaining it. And um, so, so we at Georgia State are um, the repository in, in Georgia for all of the um, materials that have been collected with Georgia marchers or people from Georgia who march you know, in other cities. And um, I know that other, other states have, have taken it on, which is awesome. Um, but I think we've done a really, really good job with it. And we've got over 100 interviews now and more than 600 photographs and pussy hats and t-shirts and um, posters and um, buttons, all sorts of different things that, that people have donated um, around the, the marches. Who's doing all these interviews? We have an amazing group of volunteers. I have tried to get volunteers in the past and it's always a struggle. Um, when I put a call out for volunteers, mostly within the archival community or on, on Facebook, um, I had 20 people respond immediately. And I would say of that 20 people, probably at least 10 are consistent volunteers who have been helping me conduct interviews since the very beginning. And in fact, um, one of the, like three of the volunteers um, work at the Atlanta History Center. One of them is a volunteer at the History Center. And the History Center has given us permission to use the StoryCorps equipment up there to conduct interviews with women who don't want to come all the way downtown. They can conduct interviews in Buckhead. So they've done, uh, you know, probably at least 20 interviews for us. Wow, that's a lot of interviews. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, is this going to live online somewhere? It already does. Okay. We have um, research guides online as well as a digital collection, and they both talk to one another. Um, there's a research guide for the, the DC March, there's one for the Atlanta March, um, there's one for marches outside of Atlanta but within Georgia, and then there's one for folks outside of all of those, and including a couple who were marched in Paris. Wow. And, and I know of someone we're going to interview who, who marched in Africa. That's Wow, that's cool. Yeah. That's really exciting. Um, well, what do you think? Uh, what what do, what do we what do you think we take away from this? What do we learn from um, 
hearing these stories and preserving these experiences? Well, I think the the telling of the stories, first of all, is really important for for the people who have told their stories. Um, it's, it's there's a catharsis. Um, there's this this um, relief that their story will be saved forever. That it's that it's the the truth is there. That is saved in an archives. And um, there's there's always this relief at the end of it that that people are like, okay, now I can, I, you know, this this is it's good. Um, not all of not the world is not good around these people. There's there's um, there's there's a while there's a catharsis about telling their story. There's also a lot of pain in um, talking about how they're feeling as time has gone by and and how things have actually been worse than we expected them to be. Um, but we're recording that, which is is really good. Um, but there's a sense of uh, community in telling our stories, our, 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 our um, shared stories, because everybody's story is different, but we, we share this, this common event, this, the, this moment that happened to all of us. Um, and I think that there's real comfort from knowing that you belong to um, th that, that kind of community um, and that we're making it publicly available. It's, it's not hidden anywhere. Um, so I think there's, there is that. And I think for me as an archivist, just documenting the truth. I've never been more um, proud of being an archivist as I am right now because just because the work this like we're in a post truth in, in environment like this this is a very strange time to be in and and within um, archives it's like you're just you're documenting what happened by the people that it happened to and so there's no we, we're, we're not having to impose an interpretation on that it's it's real it's raw people generations from now will be able to 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 you know listen to these stories and um, truly understand what people um, weren't they'll read about what we were facing day to day but they'll be able to hear about how we felt about that which, which is, is powerful this is the mission of oral history in general right yeah. but I, 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 despite my earlier uh, stated pessimistic um, outlook about the march um, and the efficacy of demonstrations and things like that, um, I know what you mean. I mean, there's uh, something very powerful about seeing others being seen, uh, knowing that you're not crazy, that you're not the only person who feels this way, um, and hopefully that you can't be ignored. Um, becoming publicly legible, I think, is something that's really important, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and it, it kind of, it, it carries on this, um, I, so many of the women I've talked to, regardless of, and men, regardless of where they marched, no one thought it was going to be as big as it was. And almost overwhelmingly, and people always get emotional when they talk about this, is the, is the point where people have their first tear usually, is like, and I remember vividly myself coming over the crest of a hill, looking down to where the rally was taking place in DC and seeing the magnitude of, of the crowd. And it was like, my first thought was, we're not alone. And this, we, we are, you know, we are strong and we're powerful. And that is the, 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 the piece that people take away from the, the marches, I think. As there's many different things, but that really is very powerful for them. And I think then, then saving those as a group, I think that's why bringing them together and, right. and making them available together is such, it's, it's like, it's a crowd. Um, it, it's really a, a, a strong, strong statement. What do you think the um, impact has been of this march? I mean, you know, those sort of ramifications that followed in our culture, our politics. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. I think so far, it's been really interesting that the, the issues that, that I've heard talked about um, are um, the 
the sort of Me Too movement, the women are not, we're not quiet anymore. Um, there's that off, awesome song that, you know, I can't keep quiet. Um, and I think that that's been a really powerful message that we've just kind of like, okay, I guess that's what happens to us around so many issues and women are not, not taking that anymore. And I think having, having seen the power of the size of, of, of our, our sort of collective presence um, all over the world, it's given us some, I think, courage and, um, and a willingness to, to have some difficult conversations to not just like quietly accept things and just because it's easier we are you're we're gonna you know challenge the man and um um make people uncomfortable and that's that's okay um yep. so i have seen that um but what, what's also been interesting in talking to and it's probably going off topic a little bit but talking to the women over time is are the just the people I've interviewed over time, is the power of um, how impressive the younger generation has been. Seeing young people come to the, the women's marches and then seeing them um, mobilize since then, especially with the, um, you know, the gun, gun violence um, protests um, has been, I, I see that as giving uh, the people we've interviewed the most hope that this, that this younger generation is is like they are already trained to be activists. And it seems like um, that the march definitely had something to do with galvanizing so many women who are running for office oh. since then, right? Uh, there's a great um, one of the very first interviews I conducted was with Emily Halliday. She was one of the bus captains. And she, um, it was a fantastic interview. She decided, she, she's like, I think I should, I should run for office. And so she contacted, um, I think it was New Power Pack. It was one of the, one of the organizations that um, help women, um, they train women to, 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 for, to run for office. And she was, uh, her application was declined because the, the number of women who had submitted requests for this training was like so beyond anything they'd ever experienced before. They had to pick and choose um, who they could actually um, do the training with. So even then, that was like immediately after the march. Emily was one of my very first interviews. Women were, were already like, screw it, I'm running. I, it's like I can I can only do better than the people that are there now. Um, when somebody who's so not qualified to to lead is elected, it's like well, it's like when you do karaoke and you're scared <laughs> to sing, and then you hear like the worst singer in the room. It's like oh hell, I can do that. <laughs> that is quite an analogy. Uh, yeah, the whole concept of meritocracy seems to. Uh, have been undermined somewhat lately. Um, so you look at it and say, if that person can do it, I can do it. Yeah, and and so not only are women running or, or um, sort of trying to run, women are also feet on the ground trying to help people win elections. Uh, and we saw that with the um, the efforts around uh, John Ossoff's campaign. It was it was women who um, were were knocking on doors, really making the difference. It's been in various different elections, it's been women, especially black women, mm -hmm. who have been turning the elections, um, sort of, you know, they're, they're making seats like switch from, from Republican to Democrat. So women are motivated in so many different ways that um, I see that that march didn't just end that day. I think it, it really got people Moving. It's a long, long. It's a long march. It really so to speak. is. A, it's a marathon. Yeah, um, it's not a sprint. No. Um, well, you know, and I just uh, another news item that comes to mind is uh, the 28-year-old um, socialist candidate in New York, who um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who took out you know my former congressperson in Queens, 
um, who was useless as a sack of potatoes. So, um, you know, these are exciting things. Um, yes, and I'm really glad we got to talk about, you know, you've been talking to people about their experiences, but it's nice to uh, ha hear your experience and, you know, this sort of unique nexus where you are at in this, in this activism and this uh, scholarship. Um, you made my gloomy ass feel a little bit better, so that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> this is a really exciting resource. Where can um, uh, listeners find um, these collections? Well, they can do a couple of different things. They can either come up to Special Collections on the eighth floor of Library South here at Georgia State University, and I will be happy to work with them. Um, or they can find them online. Um, there are links to our research guides from our research guide pages. And there is a Women's Marches um, a digital collection page that includes all of our um, oral histories as well as the photographs. That's so great. They're, they're very welcome. I encourage them to, to go check them out. We'll put the link in the show notes. That'd be great. Well, thank you, Maura, for uh, taking all this time to talk with us. This mm -hmm. is really um, exciting work, and I think people are going to value it for a long time. Thank you very much for being interested in it. Thanks. I had a situation after I went, I had to have some physical therapy when I came back home, and there were some people talking about the Affordable Care Act at the therapist that day. And I went in, I was sitting there on my phone, you know, and I overheard this conversation. And this woman behind the desk who was signing people in said, I know, those. I heard George Soros is paying those women to get out there and march. Wasn't that blah, blah, blah. And I, I said, I went in for my therapy and I came back out and I very tactfully leaned over to her and I said, I was there and I marched and nobody fucking paid me. <laughs> And she didn't know what to say. Now, I, I didn't say it loud enough to cause a disruption in the office, but I wanted her to know that other people are sitting in that office and she was a business and she needed to be respectful of other thoughts, other people's thoughts. Yeah, so I'm get emotional. Um, being a, a young black man and me having um, really, really fucked up conversations with my job. And... Um, yeah, always talking to him about, like, his morality at 15 is really not fair. Yeah. So. It's not something you should have to deal with at that age. No. Whatever, like, really. Like. Right. So, like, yeah, you can't walk down the street. And if you do, I need you to look like this. Because I don't know how someone's going to respond to you. So, that that is really, like, hit home for me. Out of all this stuff, that is hit home for me. And just knowing, like... And I'm telling them all the time, I'm like, one, your one mistake for you could cost you 10 to 15 years in, a, in our prison system because it's naturally built against you. So I can't let you make mistakes. And so I'm harder on you. And I'm sometimes I'm cold because I know what's on the other side of a bad mistake for you. I definitely am trying to get more involved in politics, um, being that I'm so young. It's more difficult, um, especially trying to find summer programs or summer internships um, is a lot more difficult than if I were a high school student or a college student. Um, but I think that it, I could use it to my advantage, being that I'm so young, um, that I can kind of represent other people who are even younger than me. and. I definitely want to try to do something. Um, I'm, I have, um, I've given my email to um, um, one woman who works with a lot of um, like other women's marchers and women activist groups um, to see if she can find anything for me. Um, I've tried to get pro, like internship programs at City Hall, um, working a lot at local, like the local level because um, I know how important that is. Um, but yeah, so I'm still trying, but it's definitely more difficult. There aren't as many opportunities out there. With our group, <clears throat> we, had a one, we, have, we had a woman of color group. We had a um, area group, meaning, you know, reaching out to Rome's, to the Rome's of the world, uh, you know, South Georgia's of the world. And the two issues that came up the most was the messaging. 
when it came to the South Georgia women, they don't have the same issues as the woman of women of color. And so what we basically had to end up saying was this march has to be personal. And we can't we will come up with guidelines, but that the guidelines are gonna include everything. But when it comes to your specific why why you are going, that it needs to be personal. And I think there's going to be like that for all women uh, because a a white woman has no idea, even if she has a best friend that's black, exactly what that black woman goes through. A black woman has no idea, even if she has a Latino friend, what a Latino friend, a woman goes through. So when it came to to the messaging, I didn't get wrapped up in that. I let people who seem to be way more concerned about those type things get wrapped up in that because my point was we've been talking about these same things for 200 almost 50 years i'm sick of talking about them talking about them so i'm about changing it there's there's something really deep and physical happens to you when you're connected to a crowd of people who are we're all desperate for connection with with each other because we're so like all of this is just so counter to everything we thought would ever happen mm. um, but the, the peacefulness and the joyfulness of doing it um, but the, also the sort of like this sort of loving anger that we have for the world for for our country um, but, the, but that was being channeled in such a positive way mm. um, just just listening to that and feeling it the vibration around me was just so amazing you know it's one of these days that you you never forget you'll never uh, makes me quite emotional just thinking about it um it's just like this is the best of humanity mm-hmm. you know and we're allowed to do this here so those are some of the voices of the women's march the historic mobilization that followed um in the 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 um aftermath of donald trump's election um and which has become part of i would see a much bigger um, and and more enduring movement. Um, I got that outcast lyric wrong earlier from um, Mumble in the Jungle. Um, The game changes every day, so obsolete is the fist in marches. Speeches only reaches those who already know about it, so this is how we go about it. From uh, the great 1998 album Stank Onya. Um, Far be it for me to disagree with outcast, but uh, I would say in this case that uh, the fist in the march is not obsolete. And we're seeing that more and more um, in all kinds of activism that have been happening over the last few years. Um, ironically, uh, we don't usually do this on the show, but um, we, uh, Will actually did some research on the I subject did. that I we're did. talking about. So, you know, throw some numbers at me, man. Well, I mean, the numbers vary. And so I, when I, when I did my own research, I kind of went with the lower estimates, not to... Um, not not to try and diminish the accomplishment of it at all, but just to be sort of small c conservative. Um, and I mean, it, but this is indisputable, is that it is the largest single day protest in U.S. history. And uh, the only protest, and the second largest protest is actually the Women's March of January 2018. So, I mean, this was an enormous event. And so we're talking about at least... 470,000 people in Washington alone, which is at least three times larger than Trump's own inauguration. (laughs) Uh, Some some counts of the march uh, in Washington rank up to a million. Uh, There are marches in other cities that were called sisters marches, sorry, sister marches, and uh, in the United States alone, we're talking about more than 4 million people in 653 cities. Nine of those cities numbered over 100,000. More than 300,000 marched in 261 cities across the world, including Antarctica. Yeah, March of the Penguins. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was an enormous event and sort of incomparable in its, in its scope. Um, for a single day protest. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, we've seen multi-city protests in the past. We've seen demonstrations where people fill the streets all over the world and everywhere from San Francisco to Rome, uh, 
protesting, you know, the um, the the Iraq War or any other, uh, you know, climate change. Um, there are lots of, you know, major political events, but really uh, none that seems to uh, parallel this. Although the inauguration did have a lot more people in the Women's March. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was unbelievable. It was the biggest inauguration Ooh, in Sean all time. Spicer into the room. <laughs> this is, this is uh... incredible, folks. We filled them all. <laughs> filled them all. No. Right. Anyway, just kidding. So I don't know. This uh, is about re- it's about recording history. It's about oral history. Um, it's about resistance. But um, as historians, I think uh, what we teach a lot of the time is um, looking back at movements of the past and seeing what worked and what didn't work, what strategies, what tactics. If you look at the abolitionist movement or you look at the women's suffrage movement or you look at the labor movement, um, I'm always, as a teacher, always trying to you know, use these as examples of whether you're on the right or the left or in between um, of you know, if you want to have a successful movement, how do you do it? What's in the toolbox? What strategies work? Um, that's something I'm always interested in. I think that uh, we have we still have a lot to learn about that, and um, and 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 the game does change sometimes. But um, that's what we're trying to do with this show. Um, we really want to thank Morna Gerard for taking uh, time out of her busy schedule to talk about the great work that she does. Uh, I'd like to thank all the great activists who whose voices we've um, heard on this show, and and the many hundreds of thousands others who. Um, filled the streets. Uh, we'd also like to thank um, our f- friend of the pod, Tired Pony, uh, Tender Pony rather, for um, our intro and outro music, and uh, Will Greer, my guest host here, for um, laying the whole thing out and sound editing and stuff. So Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we hope that uh, this will turn out to be useful um, for future researchers, historians, students, teachers, and so forth. Anyway, signing off.